getting all this, what I'm kind of speaking so far this morning. If you want to turn to James 4, we're going to be in James 4, 1 through 12 today. And for those who don't know me, I'm, I'm Andy DeBoer. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Cross Life. And uh, part of what we do here at Cross Life is, um, and, and we'll, I'll be preaching through this today as far as community goes, but what we're trying to do is not only build a, an intimate community where we lift each other up and spur each other on to good works, but also train each other and equip each other to go out and do the ministry. Um, and one of those things that we've been doing since since we've been here is Ricky's been pouring into me to be able to teach. Um, I teach elsewhere, um, but not usually um, in this fashion. And so I've, I've, I've grown and, and been giving sermons the last few years. And uh, continue to learn. Um, one of the things I've learned is that um, I'm not a great and eloquent speaker. Actually, I don't know if I've learned that. I think I always knew that. Um, and um, and so when I when I when I speak when I sermon, I I, I write it all out because I I just don't really kind of trust myself yet <laughs> to uh, speak. Um, and speak well. But I also pray, and I'm, we're going to pray here uh, as I get going, um, that, that, that God's words are, are here and not my own, um, because mine are insufficient, but his are perfect. So let's pray, and, and let, we'll get going. Heavenly Father, um, what a wonderful time of worship here this morning. Um, at least for me, to be able to come into your presence and with like-minded believers and uh, fellowship with each other and um, fellowship with you, being communion with you. It's the, uh, it's the thing that I, I hope are, and I know that my heart longs for. I pray that others do as well. Um, and that um, we are find our fulfillment in that communion with you and so I, I thank you for that, Father, um, for me and for the others in here. And I also pray that um, your words might be here today, um, that we might hear from our loving Father, our holy, gracious, eternal, beautiful God, that you might speak to hearts this morning um, where my words that I've prepared failed, that you might be those words to our hearts and that you might be the one to, to change hearts and change lives. We love you, Father, and we thank you for, for, for redeeming us and being here with us. In your precious and lovely name, amen. All right, James 4, 1 through 2. Uh, today's sermon, if you've been following along, you'll, you'll see you know, James wrote this letter. Uh, to the dispersion, right? So those scattered throughout the world at that time, and not just uh, in Jerusalem, but um, all over. And, and he wrote this as a singular letter, right? Even though if you read it and you go through it, and you're just like, it's a little disjunct sometimes. It's actually, as we studied it, we, we find out it's very much um, cohesive, okay? And he's starting to, I, I feel like, kind of come... Maybe not to a climax, but really start to, you know, if we, if we go back and kind of remind ourselves um, of what we've been talking about, trying to come, starting to come to a, a wholer picture, okay? Um, so as we've been going throughout the book, we've seen um, 
you know, James is often considered the book of, <laughs> kind of the book of works, right? This, if you're, if you're a Christian, this is what you do. But as we're seeing, hopefully more and more, that that's, James is, is trying to say, you know, this is what we need to do, but not only what we need to do, but if you truly have faith, this is what will happen. Um, if we don't see these things in your life, you may end up at least questioning whether that, that, that faith is actually authentic. Um, do you truly love who you say you love? And that's what James has been, is, is been talking about throughout the book, you know, and actually kind of um, mirrors a little bit the Sermon on the Mount, if you ever go back there um, and read those things too. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are meek. Um, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are not necessarily things that, I mean, we, we do, but those are, those are symptoms of a true changed life, okay? Those are fruit, um, and that's what Jesus was saying. Um, so, uh, let's review just a little bit of what, we've son- of what we said, and then we'll, and then we'll read this. Um, if we've re- if, uh, let's see, I'm going to start with my notes here. In review, James has said that those who have faith, who truly love and follow God, find their identity in Him, and are not just Christians in name, but those who have these qualities, who, when their faith is tested, are those who are refined and sanctified, and who don't fall away and become bitter. They are those, true Christians are those who are not double-minded, who say they love God. Double-minded people are people who say they love God, but have a divided loyalties, divided loves. They are doers of the word, James says, not hearers only. They don't show partiality, discrimination, but true believers love their neighbor as themselves. They are those whose faith is evidenced by good works. Their works are backed up with action. As we get closer to to three here, they are those who tame the tongue by speaking truth in love. Good words that flow out of the heart, devoted to God, who is himself truth and love. And as we reflected on last week, at the end of chapter three, they are those who seek wisdom from God. They seek the application of knowledge into their life, yes, of knowing him um, to a life that reflects that, whose characteristics reflect, as we read, purity, peace, gentleness, reasonability, impartiality, sincerity, mercy, and good fruits. And today, in chapter 4, we'll look deeper into another characteristic of those whose, whose faith is real, humility. Let's begin, then, by reading James, starting in 4. I'm actually going to start in 3.16, because I think this is uh, just a good segue here. So we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 16, and read through 4.12. Read with me. I'm in the, the ESV version. For with jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then you feel him kind of say, 
turn the coin. So what then causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And, he says to say, when you do ask and do not receive, it's because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Your passions. You adulterous people, James says. You, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and poor and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. So, this is what we're teaching from today. And uh, like I uh, try to do, maybe even to, uh, maybe I forced a little bit this week, I still, it just helps me in my mind, Three-point sermon, <laughs> okay? Always. So I like to tell you up front, and it may maybe even spoil the climax a little bit, but it, it's fine. It, it makes it nice and clear. Point one, we're going to talk about true faith and community, all right? The importance of the characteristics of true faith in building a godly community and the importance of community itself. Point two, then, what causes the breakdown of that community? Point three, Fixing the community of true faith by the, by the fruit of true faith and humility. <laughs> yeah, long points, right? They're not... Usually points are supposed to be like two or three words. Sorry. First one, true faith and community. Two, what causes the breakdown of community? Three, fixing that community. True faith and community. As we've made our way through James, we've discussed the characteristics of those who have true faith. And because of this, we often focus on our own lives and take inventory on if our lives truly reflect the godly life, the transformed life, a life only capable of those who are truly born again, who are truly spiritually alive. And we do, and and we will do that again, of course, that's not a bad thing, but if we're all paying attention All of what James says applies to those who are inside the church, the community of believers. And it happens again here in our passage as we look to see what causes quarrels, fights, wars, 
dissension within the community. It comes from individuals, but the individuals that make up that community. And everyone in the community is affected by everyone else. What we say and what we do will build or break down a community and not only community with ourselves, but communion or community with God. So, even despite what the meta-narrative says or might be in our culture, uh, as I was reading this week, social scientists will say that we are a product of our community, that our beliefs, how we're shaped, is a product of our relationships and the culture in which we live. We very much depend on our culture and our communities, our relationships for identity and belief. The irony, then, in the West is that in our culture, our larger culture, community, the narrative is very much individualistic. The narrative is, do what makes you happy. Find your true self. And then, in order to find your true self and make yourself happy, you are to pursue the things that make you happy and true to yourself. However, when we make this our focus, when everyone seeks to make themselves happy, the good of the community breaks down. The thing is, until you've traveled to other places, or if you're a, a history buff and, and you know your other times, we, like our culture, tend to have blinders on to those things. Our culture tends to think that we're original, we are the most enlightened of cultures, the most moral of cultures, and therefore correct in its thinking, and that anyone who disagrees with these beliefs is narrow-minded and bigoted. The other thing, church, is that we live in this culture. And many of those traits are kind of hard to, to escape if we're not careful, right? We can, they can slip inside the church without knowing it, especially if we don't study the word, because our culture will shape us. Because communities are powerful. Our communities shape our lives. Those around us, especially those whom we look up to, have a profound influence on how we think and what we believe. This is why it's so important that we build godly community within the church. And this is another reason why we want to do church the way we do it here at Cross Life. I've heard stories of pastors saying how people have come up to them and expressed to them after a sermon how their sermons have changed their lives. Yet these pastors say, knowing these people, they continue to do the same worldly things with no visible change in their lives. And this is exactly what James is writing about, right? But why? Why do we not see a change and people in this model of church. Because this is, going with the community, sadly, what to say many churches become in the U.S. You go to church, you sing songs, say hi to a few people around you if you're lucky, listen to the sermon, then go home and have no other interaction until the next Sunday, right? We've done that, okay? You think you're in a community of believers, but you're really just in an aggregation. 
This isn't a community. Your community is, is actually somewhere else throughout the week. That's why this, is, this will not really change your life. In order, to, to, in order for your life to really change, to become more and more like Christ, you must be a part of a biblical community. As we said before here at Cross Life, there's no such thing as the lone wolf Christianity. Because when everybody and everyone is pursuing God and holding each other accountable in all humility, then lives are changed. And it is this community that God meant to change the world, to reflect his glory, to make himself known. And if you're not quite convinced about the importance of the community yet, let's, let's all turn to uh, what Jesus says in John chapter 17. And since I'm turning with you, actually, never mind, I got there real quick. <laughs> John 17, we're going to read 11 through 23. Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, so as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they May all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. How will the world know about God? Through the biblical, loving, godly community as God means for it to be. That we, that we may be of one mind, a, a unity, that Christ is in us and that we be his hands and feet this is why James is so adamant in this letter that our works reflect our words, our beliefs. For this is how we display the glory of God. By being one as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. But how can we be one if we're indifferent to one another? If we don't care for one another? If we don't pray for one another? And not just 
on a few hours on Sunday, but all week. This is where I'll step aside and say, I am, I am so happy for Cross Life that, that we do this. Um, for those of you who are visiting, we have, we have a women's, we've had men's study group for the first part of this year and women's on, on Wednesday. But it's not just that midweek thing. Guys now, uh, because the women got this started, have prayer partners and we pray for each other and we text each other throughout the week. And we see how each other are doing. And, and, and so we're always trying to rub together and, and, and build each other up and keep that community throughout the week. So, coming back to this, how, how, how can we do that, though, if we're, in, if we're indifferent to one another and we don't care for one another or pray for one another? Or as we'll discuss here in a bit, how are we to be one if we're quarreling with one another, as James says? The answer is we can't. But James goes even further and says here in verses 4 and 5, referring to quarreling, that those who continue to fight one another don't sow in peace, as he's told us to do in verse 18. They are, in fact, at enmity with God, at enemies. So why does James say that we're enemies of, of God, those who don't seek peace but continue to fight? How are we enemies in, the, in, the, our, in our actions that break down community. Sorry. Uh, because God himself, listen, God himself is the ultimate, perfect, peaceable, loving community. His very nature is a community. Right? Within the pages of the Bible, while we may not see the term and word trinity, we see God as one being in three persons from all eternity. Three persons in one being. We are one person in one being. God is like no other thing, created or uncreated. He is three persons in one being. That's enough to boggle the mind of not only young people, but the most versed scholars. But because he is three persons... One God, one being, three persons. He is a community. And since he is the only uncreated, everlasting source of life, he is at the very center of and is the essence of existence. He's the fabric of life. Community is at the fabric and essence of life. And if it is the fabric of life, then, community is important. <laughs> if you're still not convinced that the church community is important, if you think you can live the Christian life without the church, then meditate on that, the Trinity. And not only is all of this um, what we've talked about, but God calls us into communion with himself, into this perfect community that has existed from time eternal. In fact, this is the essence of the gospel, that God sent his son into the world to redeem that world that was separated from him, that was out of communion with him, outside of his community, and 
to have communion with him, to be a part of the community to which he has called us, is heaven. It is the thing we desire most. It's what we're made for, and where we find our fulfillment. So you see, when we break down community through our quarreling, through our indifference, we make ourselves enemies of God. We are breaking the very thing he has called us to do. So then, what causes the breakdown of community? Let's read. Let's go back and and read again so that we remind ourselves. I'm going to read James 4, 1 through 5, and then I'm going to skip down 11 through 12. Back in James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one, who speaks ev- the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and destroy But who are you to judge your neighbor? According to this passage, what is it that James is saying breaks down community? Breaks down relationships. Quarrels and fights, right? They're the opposite of peace that should should be sought and manifested. The very thing he talked about in uh, chapter 3, verses 18, where he says, It is not, James says, is, is it not that your passions are at war within you? He says, you desire and do not have. You covet and cannot obtain. You ask, but you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You might already begin to see that there's a cause, but also a cause behind the cause. Right? We're going to talk about both. But first, let's talk about the cause James presents in verses 1 through 3. The Greek word here for desire, I think it's hedona is the same word we use for our English word hedonism or hedonism. It is the same word used in other places in the New Testament. Okay, we'll see it throughout there, as in, uh, for instance, Ephesians 2.3, where Paul says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like James, Paul then goes on to say that this is the very opposite of God, And because of this, we were by nature objects of his wrath. The word desire is not the desire for things of God, but for the things of the world. Desire, hedona, means you please yourselves. To live a life of self-pleasing, your comfort, your convenience, your control, is more important than anyone else's. Your needs are more important. Essentially, James is saying that it is because you are seeking, 
because I am seeking my own comfort, my own convenience and control over anyone else's in a hundred little ways a day that our communities, our relationships break down. And preparing for this sermon, I came across uh, some, some Tim Keller stuff referring to Thomas Howard, who himself was a Catholic writer in the early, mid-20th century, and who wrote a book called Splendor in the Ordinary, where he wrote about this principle of living that we're talking about. In it, he says that we prove what we live for in the little, every ordinary things, everyday ordinary things in life. A life of self-pleasing will be evident not only in the big things, but start with all the small things. In the book, he quotes another 19th century writer, George MacDonald, who says that the one principle of hell is, I am my own, my life for me. And Thomas Howard goes on to explain that there are essentially two ways of living life. My life for me, or my life for others. And this will be evident in a hundred different ways every day. You see, when you desire and ask for your own passions, as James says, what he's saying that is that you are living a, a my life for me principle. And I am my own principle. You expect others to sacrifice for you, to lay down their wants and desires in order to satisfy your own convenience, comfort, and control. And if everyone does this, well, you can see how if we bring this to its logical conclusion, its total end, we will have hell. But if you live a my life for others principle, then you are the one laying down your life for others. You're saying that their comfort and convenience is more important than yours. And in each of these little ways of self-giving, you experience a little death to yourself, a laying down of your life for another. My life for others always entails a death. You can see this in a hundred little ways. For instance, letting someone go, especially when you're hurry, in a hurry, letting someone before you go go before you at the grocery store is <laughs> a little death. Sometimes it's a really big death, right? <laughs> Waiting to listen and understand someone for 10 minutes entails a death to that 10 minutes of your life, which you can't get back. How about this? How about, and a lot of us can understand this, right? Parents, right? Experience this in a hundred little ways for a long time, yes? Laying down their lives not only to their own wants, sometimes their own sleep, their own time, and certainly their own money, right? But you see, this laying down of your life, death to your personal needs, also means life. A sort of resurrection to your community. And offering a thank you acknowledges your indebtedness to someone else, realizing that, they're, that they, they laid down their wants for you. And this mutual laying down of life, of comfort, convenience, and control, 
creates and breathes life into relationship and community. But when you desire and covet, but cannot get what you desire and covet, what does James say happens? If you're living a my life for me and something gets in the way of your getting my life for me, what happens? We begin to fight for ourselves to obtain what we don't have. And when we all do that, quarrels and fights bring out among us. And in verse 2, James says, even in the end, these fights can lead to murder. Now, in all the commentaries, they're, they're saying, I, they don't really think that people are actually murdering each other in the church at this time. But what James is doing is taking it to its logical conclusion that if, if you continue to fight and don't lay down and sacrifice your time your wants, your convenience for others. You will continue to fight for yourself. And in the end, you will do whatever it takes to get it. A, I am my own, my life for me. Uh, I can do this myself. I owe you nothing principle. Breaks down relationships, community. And when you follow it to its end, as George MacDonald says, it leads to hell. Hell is full of my life for me. I am my own. I owe you nothing. This is where God says, so be it. Now, some commentators have said that there are two types of people in the church that James is, is writing to here. He says, some, some say that there's both believers and non-believers, those who say they believe but aren't. And I certainly think there are both types in the church at this time, just as there are in those, uh, of those, that, uh, those type of people in the church today. But I think he's talking to true believers here as well. He's, he's not talking to two different groups. He's talking to everyone. As I say, is, is evidenced in verse 1, where he says that your passions are at war within you, like Paul says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. And we also read this further in verse 4 when James talks to the, all of them and says, You adulterous people, speaking to everyone. Here, actually, this is a softened translation. Trans, uh, translated literally, it's not you adulterous people. It's, it says, you adulteresses. I saw the furrow of the brow over here. Yeah, right? Okay. You adulteresses. He uses the feminine part here. Okay. He uses the feminine word. James uses that here to describe all the members as adulteresses. And we think, why? Well, this, uh, the people at the time, would have, this would have been very familiar to them. Okay? This is a theme throughout the Bible, where God is the husband, and Israel, the people of God, is the wife. And all throughout the Bible, we see that Israel is, adulter is, is committing adultery, seeking after other things, seeking after other gods, not putting God first, and God is always pursuing them and bringing them back. It says in Judges that they did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was according to what they thought best. Here, those who do what is right in their own eyes uh, live self-pleasing lives. They're called adulteresses. Those who, who leave their true love to please themselves. And the reason I personally don't think James is calling out 
only those who profess faith and don't have it, but also those who do, is that he calls them all adulteresses. Here we see unity with the rest of the letter he has written. He calls out people who do, uh, who do and say they do have faith, but don't show it in the way they live. Double-minded people who have or say they have faith in God, but live in many different ways every day like they don't. When we live in this way and want things more than God to please ourselves, to want our comfort, convenience, and control, what does it say? We set ourselves at enmity with God. We make ourselves enemies. James says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm going to skip here a little bit to verses 12, 11 and 12, even though this might be something that Ricky starts with next week. I think it's very pertinent to this. Remember in 11 and 12, he says, uh, don't speak evil against one another, because those who speak evil against your brother, judge him. And if you're, you're a judge, or if you're a judge, you're not a doer of the law, and there's really only one judge and lawgiver, right, he says. Okay. So I'll be brief here with a few points how this wraps in. There may, be, there may have been some problems in the church, and this is kind of what we're thinking, over the certain views or issues of the law where arguments broke out. People were more concerned about being right than being loving. Now certainly there's a place for standing for truth, right? But they were arguing and becoming unloving and became... Uh, began starting speaking evil or slandering each other. Does that sound familiar? Maybe not. Maybe not in this church, but how about I see it especially in forums online, social media? Yes? The perceived safety, I saying here is seems to bring kind of out the worst in people or really maybe the actual heart of us when we when we start to not only to debate the issues but to then start slandering people in defense of ourselves right the irony is that using this type of speech against one another speaking evil of your brother or sister in Christ is that your actually breaking the law of Christ, the very thing you say you're defending. James says that when you do that, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And you've placed yourself above the law. And he follows that, that there's only one lawgiver and judge, and this is God. There's only one who is above the law. So you're, when you place yourself above the law, you're making yourself God, building your own kingdom. Defending yourself, my life for me. Bringing it back to earlier verses, when we begin to quarrel and fight and speak evil, slander our brothers, we are acting as the world does. We are self-pleasing, living a my life for me life. Living a life where I will defend my honor and dignity, my comfort, my control, my convenience, my pride. What is the cause behind this then? What is the cause of fighting? The cause behind the cause is pride. Pride is self-seeking. 
thinking about yourself more, about placing yourself in every little way above others. Pride makes you unforgiving to those who wrong you. With pride, you have meltdowns when things don't go your way or you perceive you're mistreated. In pride, you wallow in self-pity. And let me be the first to say, self-pity right here. Lots. This breaks down fellowship, relationship, community. But not only with our brothers and sisters, but our communion with God. This is why the Bible says, God opposes the proud. In the end, it is the opposite of God. The essence of community in love. And it, pride, spells the death of both individuals and community. In verse 5, James says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Or, in some translations, it says the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. The translation here is actually difficult, and there's uh, a lot of uh, commentary on it, but either way, this emphasizes the teaching of the Bible that we have a natural propensity to covet, on one hand, a desire, or that in our desiring something else, God longs for and desires, sorry, God longs for us to desire him instead. Like I said, either way, it puts a climax to what James has been saying. When you quarrel and fight, when you slander your brother, when you seek to please yourself more than you seek to please God, and please God by living for others, you're giving evidence against the very faith you proclaim. This does not glorify God, and in fact, sends the world a very mixed message, the wrong message, that God is not a God of peace, love, and truth. And when we do this, we set ourselves against God. Now, has this ever described you? Do you seek your own comfort, convenience, and control? Have you ever, in your goal to proclaim truth, put pride of being right over speaking truth and love. I say that particularly because I have. This is convicting me in my life. But when we read verse 6, he gives us more grace. James goes on to explain to us that what can remedy my life for me, spirit? What is actually and truly a reflection of true faith, of one who loves God and puts their affection toward an identity in him, James says he gives us more grace. But then follows it up with, who does he give grace to? God gives grace to the humble. So point three, it won't be quite as long, don't worry. Maybe. Fixing the community of truth, or sorry, community of faith then by humility. James 4, 6 through 10. Read with me. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and poor and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. So how, then, do we get humility? 
And as we said, I think many times in this church, what is the, and you, I, could ask, I could ask you, hey, what, what is the definition of humility? And humility is the thinking less of yourself, right? Thinking less, of, not thinking of yourself, well, sorry, is thinking of yourself less. I said that right, I said that wrong, I'm sorry. It is not thinking less of yourself, sorry. It is thinking of yourself less. Turn a phrase. So how do we get the thinking of myself less? Because that is my natural propensity, is to think of myself. First, by knowing of the enormity of God, the greatness and holiness of God, and knowing, knowing his love for you, we talk about it. We preach it. But until you know it and it sits in your soul, humility is not a thing you will possess. But if we know it, this will cause us to do what James lists in, the, in these verses. And like the Sermon on the Mount, these are seen as characteristics of one who has true faith. Submit to God, it says. Now, it's not the submission that we think of where often in this society we think of submission as, as, a, as a weakness, yes. Um, it is admitting that you are bankrupt, bankrupt without him, poor in spirit, submit to him. But it's not necessarily weak because right after it he says, resist the devil. Satan is a very powerful being. But you resist this powerful being by submitting in meekness. Weakness, or sorry, strength under power. You submit to God. You draw near to God. And he draws near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, it says. And then purify your hearts. Right here, James is saying, uh, clear up your external actions. Just like what he's been saying throughout the whole letter. Your actions reflect your heart. Okay? So make your external acts be in line with God. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remember we said double-minded are those people with divided loyalties. With loves for, they say they love God, but they actually love something just as much or more. So he says, you need to do some self-reflection. Okay. You need to think, is God really my first love? Purify your hearts. Search your hearts to see who has your ultimate affection or if you actually hold something else equally or above God. Then he ends with, be wretched and mourn and weep. Okay, As it says in the Sermon on the Mount, what does this mean? It's a characteristic of someone who is broken over his or her sin. If God is your ultimate love, then sin, acting against him, should cause you grief. And then he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to grief. Is James against laughter and joy here? No, he's not against laughter and joy. Okay? But he is against the flippant life that this laughter and joy is talking about. 
is for or is a symptom of. The my life for me. The eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die type of life. One who sees the emptiness of this type of life. How does the opposite of God, whom, if you truly love him, this life will cease to find pleasure in my life for me, who will be broken over their actions that display my life for me. God says, lastly, what do we do? We humble ourselves before the Lord, James says. Sorry. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So here we come to our second way of getting humility, by knowing, as Keller says, by knowing the upside-down principle of life, of, of the universe, the upside-down principle of the universe. When you lay your life down for God and others, die to your own power and control, you'll get it back forever. But if you hold on to your life, my life for me, I own... I owe you nothing. You'll become more like Satan. And life becomes more and more like hell. And eventually when life is done, you'll actually be in hell. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You live your life for you, you lose it. You live your life for others and for God. You find it. Life with God. Life with others in relationship. Life with community. The upside-down principle of the universe, then, is fashioned from God who made it, as we've said earlier. He himself, the holy three-in-one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have been and continue to do this. This is God's essence, and therefore the essence of existence. Each person of God constantly defers to the other, loves and glorifies the other. That is why this is the only way life can be lived. Sacrifice is at the core of existence. And this is what Paul explains in Romans 15 when he says, each of us should please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. And why Jesus was praying that we should all be one as he and the Father are one. This is the only way life can be lived. This is the only way that life brings life. Now, does this overwhelm you? Do you think to yourself, I could never live completely like this. I fail at this every day. What am I to do? Church, the good news of the gospel is, Jesus lived this out in verses 6 through 8 for us. Jesus got the loneliness of the cross we deserved. Jesus got the punishment for the my life for me that, seems to const- that we seem to constantly fall back to. He took that in our place so that we can be in communion with God. And when we see this, when we remember this, when we draw near to God, see the enormity of his love for us, when we see his beauty, his worth, his holiness, and how he died when we didn't deserve it, when he died to bring us into community with him, then we can live, we can 
you can ask yourself, why am I selfish when, I, when I'm full of real wealth and love already? Why am I defensive right now when I have all charges dropped by the real judge? Why am I offended when I have the love of the king of the universe? How can I begrudge this forgiveness when I am awash in forgiveness? Seeing this, drawing near to God, this will cause us to live in humility. To live the my life for others, the my life for God principle. And this will bring life to our relationships and community. This will build his kingdom. This will glorify him. Church, let's draw near to God through Jesus. May he cause us to be humble in our faith, in our relationships with others, in the way we speak, in the way we act. And may he be the rock of our community. Cross life. Let's reflect on this this week and do this. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all honor and praise. You are the most beautiful, splendid thing. And uh, you call us to be with you. This should humble us greatly. How could we ever think and defend ourselves when we know that we already have the greatest person, the greatest love in our lives in the, in, and in the world? May this, may you, uh, may, may this be in us, Father. May you, may you speak to us in our hearts. May you cause us to live in in humility, those of us who, who really do true love you, when we fall back on, on, on living our lives for ourselves, convict us, Father, and show us that, uh, that you already, we have nothing to, to defend ourselves for because we already have the king of the universe. Father, you are precious. May we see that. May that so affect our lives. That is, it pour out, spill out over to others. And uh, may your glory be known through that by drawing more to yourself. Be in our fellowship today as we eat in fellowship with one another and be the community that uh, you've drawn us to be. We love you, Father. Amen.